At 2 a.m. Zulu on September 24, 2015, an Air Force MQ-1B Predator drone departed on a mission to collect intelligence and video surveillance of an undisclosed location. For the next seven hours, the drone flew through clear skies with no weather hazards expected along its flight path. That began to change, however, as it neared its target area. A sea breeze carried moisture onshore, resulting in unstable atmospheric conditions near the drone, including clouds, turbulence, and icing conditions. At 9.01, as the sensor operator mentioned clouds were getting closer, the pilot initiated a camera weather scan of the aerial vehicle. As the camera turned toward the aircraft, the crew detected icing on its structure. Meanwhile, the combination of ice and rough air caused the craft's angle of attack and roll control to become erratic. Airspeed slowed below stall speed, the crew lost its link with the drone, and it slammed into the ground. The wreckage of the $5.1 million aircraft was not recovered. The rapid accumulation of ice creates significant challenges for U.S. military operations in cold environments and increases infrastructure vulnerability in the Arctic. Icing presents a particular challenge to unmanned aerial vehicles, which often fly long distances through altitudes that encounter icing without the ability to easily climb to avoid an ice storm. Icing can also cause difficulty for ships, planes, helicopters, and vehicles. It can disrupt communications, create power outages, and degrade infrastructure. The growing focus on Arctic military operations means the U.S. military must stay on the forefront of cutting-edge research in those interest areas. And as we saw last winter, icing can dramatically disrupt power grids and civil works infrastructure even in areas of the United States where you least expect it. That's why a team of Arctic researchers is conducting innovative basic research to unravel the physical processes of how ice attaches to various surfaces, paving the way for future development of new protective and advanced materials and the expansion of existing treatments to broader applications and other fields, such as sustainable energy systems and maritime settings. I'm Megan Holland, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Arctic. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Emily Asina-Smith, a research materials engineer at Arctic's Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory in Hanover, New Hampshire. We will talk with Emily about how Arctic research is changing our fundamental understanding of how ice sticks to various surfaces and why this work will dramatically improve operational safety during icing events. So we're excited to be joined by Emily today, who's calling us from New Hampshire. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm doing great, Chris. Megan, how are you? Good. It's great to have you today, Emily. I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with our first question. Tell us why Arctic's Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory is the perfect place to conduct ice adhesion research, and what drew you to this research? Sure. Arctic's Krell Laboratory, as we call it, the Cold Regions Lab, is the only federal lab that has a cold regions mission. And so we're sort of uniquely tasked to uh, study all things related to cold materials, snow, ice, permafrost, uh, et cetera. And so there's a lot of, a lot of issues within that, that topic space. And I'm really just focused on um, ice and the material science of ice and specifically looking at ice and how it sticks to surfaces or does not stick to surfaces, so known as ice adhesion. Emily, if you were going to sum up why this matters in a sentence or two, what would you say? Uncontrolled icing 
causes catastrophe and loss of assets across a wide range of fields. So transportation is halted, communications are severed, and safe mobility is not assured. And so it's really important that we understand how ice sticks to surfaces if we're going to be able to effectively prevent ice sticking from surfaces to ensure that we have utilities, safe communication, safe navigation, regardless of what the weather or various environments present us with. This is a basic research project, and this is the first time we've kind of really gotten into a a basic research project on, on this podcast, which is, you know, an important area of concentration for Erdic. For people who aren't familiar with what basic research means, I mean, it's basically about the fundamentally understanding a natural phenomenon different than, you know, maybe commonly people might think about applied research where you're coming up with a technology or, or something, you know, specific to solve a problem. Basic research is more about understanding, you know, how different phenomena happen. Erdic, of course, does both. Can you talk about basic research and, and in your words, kind of what it is and why it matters? Sure. So like you said, basic research is really studying the fundamental physics of a given phenomenon. And this is the type of research that sort of opens new pathways in in a variety of different um, application spaces. So for example, in studying um, ice adhesion, as I just gave you that example, if we're studying the fundamentals of that interface between ice and a surface, or a substrate, this type of outcome is applicable to airfoil, airplanes, to communications, to um, sensors, to a wide range of different applied research settings. And say to borrow from another field, if we were to think about studying the physics of, say, electricity, right? So you're moving electrons through um, through a material that has a really fundamental nature of how electrons move, but they, that relates to how you transport charge through a solar cell or how you might move electricity long distances to supply homes. It also might, is the basis for uh, quantum computing. So you can see where you kind of, you have this fundamental topic and it has these applications to these, re- these areas that would seem disparate. And that's what characterizes fundamental basic research. So, I mean, basically what you're saying is it it kind of all starts with basic research. That's how you understand what's happening. And that would be, like you said, understanding how the electricity moves, basically. And then you would apply it to building an electrical grid or computing or, or, or whatnot. I mean, first you have to have that. It all starts with that fundamental understanding. And then you can kind of turn it into a technology, you know, somewhere down the road. Yeah, and it it goes both ways sometimes too. So you sort of have this enabling, you know, fundamental research to sort of to really understand a phenomenon. But then sometimes you get in those more applied settings and you say, "Oops, there's something we don't understand here," mm-hmm. and and you identify topics that need sort of deeper investigation. In an ideal sense, you'd start with that most basic research and progress to more applied. Um, but sometimes you have to take steps backwards to figure out challenges that you encounter as you're trying to transition technologies to more applied settings. Mm-hmm. I know when we talked to you on the phone the other day, my understanding is that's kind of how this research came to be for you and that, you know, you saw the problems with ice adhesion and, and, and the effects it was having on, on the military and in so many civil work settings, electrical grids, and approaches, I think you were telling us from a materials point of view, wanted to try to come up with some kind of new material, some sort of coding to prevent that. 
But then before you could get to that point, you realize that there was some more basic understanding that, that needed to be developed before you could get to the point of, of the coding. Is, is, am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah. So when I started at Krell, I you know, had a background in material science and you know, surfaces, interfaces, and thought about the encounter the problem of ice adhesion and thought, oh, this is great. Let's make a new material. And so I said, okay, well, let me dig into the literature. This is a related, you know, a related topic to some of concepts that I'm really familiar with, but it's different. So I dig into the literature and I find, okay, well, then how do we assess ice adhesion? Oh, we don't have a standard way of doing that. Okay, well, then how do people do it and how do they analyze the data? And it was, it, it was eye-opening. I realized that we actually don't have data and we don't have one single way that people are performing tests. And then we aren't analyzing the data in a way that's consistent with the physics of the actual test. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know what? The worst thing I could do at this point is try to make another, make another material that's going to control ice, ice accumulation or facilitate ice shedding. The best thing I could do here as sort of the independent third party in a lot of scenarios is to really help develop those standard approaches or, or physics-based approaches to assessing these materials. Mm -hmm. And that's how this developed. So essentially, and it put, we're in a unique position being a government organization. So a lot of academia and businesses are really, uh, small companies are really excited to develop materials and commercialize them. But being a government organization, you know, we're not necessarily in the business of commercializing products. We really are strongly positioned to look at how these tests are performed provide that sort of independent, unbiased assessment of what's happening and work towards developing that fundamental understanding because there, there's not really a direct profit in that, right? And no one's going to make a ton of money on, on developing a, a standard for ice adhesion testing. Mm -hmm. But if there is a standard there, then you can enable other technologies. And so that's an example of, of how unique some of the research is that we do at, at Erdic and as federal researchers. And I really like that. We're not in competition with anybody else in the field of ice adhesion. We're trying to do that fundamental work that will allow people in the field to progress their technologies because ultimately the government wants to use these technologies so they can control icing across a wide range of settings. But they have yet to deploy any of these, some of these advanced material coatings because they don't have the assessment tools and they don't know how a tiny laboratory test, scale test on a 30 by 40 millimeter substrate applies to a ship hull. You know, it's, it kind of blows your mind when you start to think, oh, wow, how are we going to scale these, you know, multiple length scales? What do these tests mean as you change length scale and as you change environment? So, yeah, that's one of the things that I find exciting about, about how we do research in a federal laboratory and especially um, in Ernic. Yeah. Emily, you've talked about how we are a government organization, but we are also a military organization specifically. So why does this matter to the military and why is it important to understand why ICE attaches to a surface? Yeah, so speaking in the context of the Army, because we are affiliated with the Army, their standard response to icing conditions is to shelter in place. And so that means if you have a situation where sensors are, are iced up or pathways to navigate have become too icy to drive and, and things become dangerous, they, they'll just stay in place. And in a contested environment, that's maybe not your best option. And so really that kind, that policy of sheltering in place really sums up 
just how difficult it still is for the military to control icing on important systems and structures. And so it's really important for, you know, the safety of our our military personnel and also communication in general in difficult environments that we understand this this icing situation so that we can work towards icing prevention measures, icing mitigation measures that don't introduce considerable weight to vehicles or additional electrical requirements. When you get into situations like unmanned aerial vehicles, that becomes a that becomes a critical barrier to deploying ice mitigation technologies is that you can't you have a lot of limitations on increasing the mass or the power requirements of those systems. And so it it, it becomes very challenging to mitigate ice. So the military has a wide diversity of needs in this space. And so it's it further gives strength to our our efforts and our impetus to our efforts to to uh, take on this problem. You mentioned the Army, but of course, this is really across all the services, you know, the potential impact it can have. Absolutely. So the Navy, for example, has difficulty interpreting laboratory scale results on new coatings and deciding if making those decisions, should we employ this new coating or this new paint on the deck of one of our ships or the hull of one of our ships? And this is a perfect time to point out that the state-of-the-art ice removal method employed by our service members on ships in the Arctic and also on the Great Lakes involves manual removal by baseball bats and sledgehammers. Hmm. Um, the Air Force, that relates to also to NASA and, and to a certain degree some commercial uh, air travel, is just that ice accumulation on aircraft is an issue. And it's definitely something that many different uh, aspects of the government are interested in. And then it, and then all uh, most of the branches of the military at this point all have unmanned aerial vehicles, and those are actually in a unique situation. So as you're if you're in a full size aircraft, you really just pass through, aside from ground de-icing. So we're talking you you know you get airborne and you pass through this the icing cloud. It's a really defined elevation that you're that you're dealing with, and if you encounter icing conditions, large aircraft can change elevation to get out of them. If it's a UAV, though, it's a whole different story. If, they're, if they encounter icing conditions, they can't just change elevation to get away from that. So the military actually has a large number of examples of losing expensive UAVs because of icing. And so I would say that that's an area of definite focus and need. And then because if, you know, even if it doesn't cause the vehicle to crash, you can lose visibility if the sensors become all iced up. So it's not just keeping ice off the wings. It's it's also keeping that situational awareness and being able to navigate remotely, mm-hmm. uh, even in an icing condition. So, Emily, we've talked a lot about military applications, but I'm assuming there are also civilian applications here. For example, this winter, this past winter, we had a significant ice storm in the south, and Texas in particular had a rough go of it. Are there applications um, here? Can the research help with that kind of thing? Are there other civil works applications that might come out of this? Absolutely. Yeah. Being so fundamental, there's, we could probably brainstorm an entire poster board of different applications where this pertains. And yes, the Texas situation was particularly tragic and studying ice adhesion and understanding how ice sticks to surfaces really has applicability, not just to those power transmission lines, but also to alternative energy systems, facilitating 
preventing ice from sticking to wind turbines, uh, preventing ice from glomming up the surface of photovoltaic um, installations. And so those are, those are ones that are definitely relevant to the scope of energy and, and in particular Texas. But I, I mean, another thing that I see a lot is I think anyone in you folks in Mississippi probably also, probably everybody knows somebody who slipped and fallen on the ice and broken some part of their mm-hmm. body and ended up in yeah, the hospital. We don't know how to handle that down here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think this has really, I, I would love to see data on that. No one's tracking it, which is really, which is really too bad. But I think that there's actually a really significant amount that you know, and aside from just dumping salt everywhere, because that has its own issues in terms of the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is bridges. So stay cable bridges have some seriously risky situations to develop under icing conditions. And there's plenty of these up north because you don't know when the ice is going to shed. And you can end up with these sort of flying sheets of ice that can cause serious damage, even if at a minimum they distract a driver who dodges it and then has an accident. So um, there's a number of number of state cable bridges that get taken out of service temporarily during icing conditions up north here to prevent all of that catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know we talked a lot about what some of the problems are. I mean, I, I guess the practical long-term application of your research is basically to unlock the potential for some of those solutions down the road by starting by understanding these fundamental principles that can pave the way for solutions to a lot of these issues. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what, what makes our approach so unique. Testing ice adhesion is actually has a lot of really subtle but very important factors. And so we first had to understand how to, how to form ice on surfaces in a very regular and controlled way. And once we accomplished that, we've now developed a method to test ice adhesion using a variety of different ice types and different geometries. And this opens the door to different analysis methods. So we're sort of slowly chipping away at this very, at these incremental developments in understanding literally ice adhesion testing. Because then once we have this pathway established, we can look at the effect of materials, this coating, that coating, this material, that material, how their properties affect ice adhesion in general. So that maybe there's a fundamental understanding that comes out of it. There's been a lot of studies um, already published trying to identify, shall we say, the fundamental controls over ice sticking to surfaces. And, and under some very specifically defined scenarios, there have been some, some developments in understanding how materials affect ice adhesion. But we're trying to look for you know, broader applicability to broader scenarios uh, so we can essentially enable the technologies that are out there or the development of new ones or other solutions that really will give the the military a competitive edge on this and then hopefully translate into uh, the civilian sector. You mentioned the unique approach that you all are taking. One of the things I understand is you all had to kind of come up with a new technology for growing ice to be able to to do this research. Is that right? Yes. So it's really interesting. When you test ice adhesion, you're thinking, okay, adhesion, it's sticking. But actually, when you test ice adhesion, you're testing how well it sticks by how hard it is to remove it. So you're kind of doing the opposite. And to do that, you're typically applying a force to the ice itself to pull it off the surface. So that means that as you're applying this force, which is essentially a mechanical load, 
your ice is part of that mechanical loading system. So if you have, so, so it's going to depend, the, the load that the surface receives or the ice that, that's actually measured is going to depend on any losses that you might have in the ice itself. Mm-hmm. And so if your ice is not well controlled or it's highly variable or you've just, you know, grown it in an ice cube tray and then melted it back on a surface with a hot plate um, as your way of adhering the ice to the surface, that's not really how it happens in reality, right? In reality, you have some kind of, you know, delivery of liquid water to the surface, which it then grows off of. Mm -hmm. And so to eliminate all of the uncertainty in these measurements, we have developed a way to grow the ice the same every time without using molds, without using ice cubes, so that we can actually have a consistent mechanical response from the ice every time we pull on it to perform a measurement of the adhesion to the surface. It's interesting. Yeah, I can honestly say I've never yeah, thought about how we grow ice before. Yeah. Well, it's really neat. So everywhere in nature, ice forms in, in response to kind of temperature gradients. So when you take an ice cube tray, you know, your plastic ice cube tray, you put water and you throw it in your freezer. It's, that's not really how ice ever forms in nature. You're, you're, you're in an isothermal situation in your freezer in your ice cube tray, meaning there's no temperature gradients or they're negligible. Mm-hmm. The temperature is constant everywhere. In nature, the temperature is not constant everywhere. So if you think about freezing water on the surface of a lake, you have the temperature of the water, you have the temperature of the air, and often it's that drop in the temperature of the air that's going to initiate freezing of the ice surface, which then proceeds downward. And so same with power lines, um, even freezing on utility lines, you'll end up in a situation where that metal uh, in those utility lines is colder. And so you have this gradient between the air and the water that's impinging upon it. And so you can, you, you very often grow ice that has very similar microstructures to the way we're growing it in, in the lab, which is essentially, if you were to cut through the ice and look at it in a microscope, you would see that the ice grains are all shaped like columns. We call that columnar ice. And that's when you find that widely in nature. And that's exactly the type of ice that we're using for our research. And we're using that because people would say, oh, well, yeah, but think about an airplane wing. You have these super cool droplets impinging at high rate on the, on the leading edge. Well, we're still in the fundamental stage um, where we need ice to be the same every time. We're using freshwater columnar ice. But we're doing this in a way that the geometry and the setup of our whole testing system is completely amenable to that impact ice that you might see on an airplane or the, sa- the spray of saline water mm-hmm. that you might encounter on a ship. So the technique that we're using is absolutely ready to, you know, once we've figured out our analysis, it'll be a straightforward manner to employ different ice types. And so that's also part of what's really important about how we're growing ice. Emily, there's something that I just have to know. Are you cold at work every day? This is hilarious. So <laughs> this is such a great question. And I just have to digress for a minute because when I, I, I kind of, I like the cold a lot more than I like the warmth. When it gets hot and humid in the summer, I literally want to dig a hole and hide in the ground. And so I've been to Mississippi as late <laughs> as June. It's bad. <laughs> it can get bad. Not only did I feel that I needed to use my umbrella as a, as a shade um, to move around with, but I observed that you guys have remote car starters because 
you and I thought, why would anyone have that? We have remote car starters up north so that we can warm up our car. I know we get you the AC going. Cars. Yeah. I was blown away. I was like, this is incredible. I'm really not cut out for the for hot weather. So no, I'm I'm actually not cold every day. I don't like being cold, but I like the air around me being cold. So I dress and bundle well, but if, if I'm working in the cold lab for a long time, but if I'm just in there for a few minutes, it's very often to see many of us just sort of sauntering into, you know, a minus 10 room without our jacket on because we're very much aware of our tolerance for the cold and how our body handles it. That's not something that's recommended for people who don't know their bodies and who don't do this all the time. Um, but we even have had, we even have researchers here who will literally walk into those rooms wearing shorts and have no jacket on and they simply, it works for them. It doesn't work for everyone. But as someone um, who so gets yeah, cold, cold when it drops below 65 degrees, I'm quite impressed over here, Emily. And y'all can get, I mean, my, so funny. minus 10 is just the beginning, right? I mean, y'all can get a lot colder than that. Yeah, totally. So the cold rooms that we have right now go down to minus 40. And um, that would be, you could say Celsius or Fahrenheit. That's where the two temperature scales cross over. But we're in the process of expanding. There's this new um, climatic chamber being built on our campus. And that's super exciting. It's much large. It will have much larger size rooms and go down to minus 50 Celsius. Wow. And allow for simulated wet wind and weather events inside of this these chambers. So that's a new capability that should be coming online next year and very cool. exciting yeah. uh, here yeah. at Krell. So Emily, you are of course based at Krell, but I know this project also involved uh, some interdisciplinary teaming that included researchers from other Arctic labs. Can you talk a little bit about that and how this project has benefited from collaboration? Yeah, so I, that's one thing that I really think is just incredible and unique about Erdic as a whole is that we have these seven labs. Four of them are co-located in, in Mississippi, but then there's three other in these very different regional locations. And because, you know, in each one of these labs has a very unique mission space. And so we really do research that's quite unusual in the context of research at other, at other laboratories. And so it, it, it means that, I'm, that I have access to some people with really unique skill sets. And so on the ice adhesion work, we were able to do some really, some, get some really unique data on materials themselves that was needed to help us with our analysis. And so that came from some really unique instrumentation at our sister lab, GSL, as we call it, in, in Mississippi. And on the same, uh, in the same regard, there was a, an adhesion-related experiment um, happening uh, there related to concrete. And they reached out to us and said, hey, wait a minute, do you guys actually know how to test this, like what we're trying to do? And so we've been able to leverage our ice adhesion testing methods to help them understand various adhesive properties within concrete. And so, I mean, those are the kind of things that you would never, you, you know, if you're, even if you're in a national lab or if you're in an uh, academic situation, Rarely are you going to see someone who's encountering thinking about ice adhesion and then also also applying that to concrete. Super unique, really exciting. And I really, I, the diversity of minds that we have and, and skills in, in Erdic is, is really, it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah, that's, that's so cool and so powerful. Thanks, Emily. We appreciate your time. I think this was such a great discussion and, and thanks for the work you're doing and the research you're doing. And, and thanks again for joining us today. Thank you both, Chris and Megan. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, good to have you, Emily. 
Erdic's ice adhesion research will provide the scientific community a greater understanding of the physics of how ice attaches to different surfaces. This will lead to scientifically robust computational models that accurately describe ice adhesion and ultimately promote the design and development of new anti-icing systems. The Power of Arctic Podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Arctic on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic Podcast in all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all for today's episode. We'll see you next time.